Hello and welcome to the second episode of our third series of Insights, the podcast from Understanding Society. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey that captures life in the 21st century. Every year we ask each member of thousands of the same households across the UK about different aspects of their life. Each episode of Insights explores how our data has been used in a key area. We look at what we found and what we can learn from it. I'm Chris Coates, your host for this episode, where we'll be looking at climate change. What can the data tell us about how we think about it? And where next for government policy? Here to discuss this with me are Ting Liu, a social statistics PhD student at the University of Manchester, who is investigating attitudes towards climate change risk and carbon emissions, and Helena Bennett, head of climate policy at the Green Alliance think tank. So, Ting, if I can start with you, you've been looking at our attitudes to the risk represented by climate change. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you've approached it? Yeah, Understanding Society asked about climate change in wave four, which means 2012 to 2014, and again in wave 10 from 2018 to 2020. To really get a feel for how people view the risk of climate change, I look at their answers to a bunch of questions. These questions were about how they see the future for climate change, what they think about its trends and consequences, and whether they believe we are facing a climate change crisis. Essentially, we want to know what people thought about statements like climate change is beyond control, it's too late to do anything about it, the so-called crisis has been accelerated, and we will soon experience a major environmental disaster. By asking these questions, we could paint a picture of the range of views people held and how those perspectives shift between the two time points. Um, and I think you've seen you've seen patterns in how our attitudes have, have changed across the 2010s. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've seen three main types of attitudes, skeptical, concerned, and paradoxical. The skeptical group largely dismisses the severity of climate change and questions the need for immediate action. Those in the concerned category express anxiety about the risk of climate change and advocate for measures to mitigate. The paradoxical group, however, is a bit tricky. They recognize the reality of climate change, but often feel powerless to effect change. Although these groups stay pretty much the same over time, people's personal views shift a lot. More people moved from skeptical and paradox groups to the concerned group. At the start of the 2010s, the paradox group was the largest, and even by the end of the decade, they were still about 40% of the people. However, the skeptical group was always the smallest. So people are moving from skeptical and paradoxical towards concern, to some extent at least. Yes, it is. So we see a temporal stability in the transition metrics, but we do see people moved from the paradoxical group and the skeptic group to the concerned group. So because of that, the concerned group was uh, the largest group at the end of the decade. Um, and can we say if there are any characteristics that make people more likely to be in, in one group than another? So I found that um, people's views on climate change vary a lot, depending on different social demographics, like gender, 
age, income, education, and even their political views. To take an example, men often show skepticism or ambivalence towards climate change, but women were typically more concerned about climate change. This might be because that、uh, women generally think more about the future, like what the world will be like for the next generation. And then the younger individuals are more worried about climate change compared to the older ones. The elderly people might prioritize the immediate concerns like their health, or they are more attached to traditional ways of doing things, especially in terms of the climate change policies.、Uh, when it comes to the income, I found that higher income individuals tend to be less skeptical about climate change. Um, this is possibly because they are seeing climate change concerns as a secondary needs compared to the basic needs. Regarding the education, we say、uh, education also plays a role. Those with more in education are more concerned about climate change. This is likely due to a better grasp of science, and then they are more exposure to climate change education. Finally, political leanings、uh, also influence views on climate change. Like the left-wing individuals generally show more concern, but right-wing individuals might maintain conservative views. Despite we saw a lot of new information on climate change. And what does that mean in terms of of policy, or, or maybe in the way governments communicate? How do how do politicians need to talk to to these different groups of people? Do you think? Well,、um, people's views on climate change can change over time, even though the overall patterns still stay pretty consistent in the population.、Um, but individuals can have more flexible opinions. So this means that we still have a chance to make policies and communication campaigns that really speak to different groups with different views on climate change. And for instance, the messages aimed at those with paradoxical beliefs could be really effective. I think because this group was the largest, but we still saw a lot of people shift from paradoxical to concerned. It seems that many people in the UK still have mixed feelings about climate change, or say a kind of non-straightforward skepticism is widespread. This suggests that people might need more information, or per- perhaps、uh, information presented differently to form clear opinions. For the paradoxical group, I believe that、uh, messages that motivate. And maybe end on a slightly pessimistic note could be more engaging than overly optimistic ones. But we have to be careful not to demotivate them with worst-case scenarios. So it's all about tailoring messages to specific groups and making sure these messages are sent where these people usually get their news. There's a lot of research also showing that different groups use different media platforms and trust different sources. So understanding how this group using media and seek information is important for the future research and also designing effective communication strategies. So essentially, governments have got to be quite careful about how they pitch the information into it, so it, it 
can't be too optimistic and it can't be too pessimistic. That's um, that's interesting. Helena, can I turn to you? Um, what do you take away from from research like this? Are you are you encouraged in your work? Yeah, very encouraged. Um, we know from 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 this research and other kind of polls that that work on much smaller timeline bases, um, especially in relation to how important things like climate change is compared to the cost of living crisis and the NHS and the economy, that it is still a really big concern for, for a lot of people. When it comes to creating policies, we at Green Alliance and, and most other um, organisations that work in the policy sphere, um, including the civil service, have to be really careful about as Ting said, the the level at which policies are pitched, there is absolutely a level of buy-in that's required from the public for a policy to be well accepted and liked, maybe isn't the right word, but liked by people before they will get on board with it. I think a really good recent example has been um, electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles have existed for for actually quite a long time, for decades, really. They've been being sold in the UK. Um, But it's only recently that we've seen government policy come in. And that's that's when we now start seeing negative stories in the press and a little bit of pushback from some parts of the public um, because, you know, perhaps the policy wasn't introduced in a way that was well communicated with the public. Um, And I think this is a good example because the government policy actually is to phase out the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030. Whereas what we were hearing from social media, from Twitter and from from kind of other um, bits of research that have been done was that a lot of the public misunderstood the policy and thought that we we were having a complete ban on petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030. I'm not saying that's most of the public, but there are little pockets of it that where dif- disinformation then spreads and, and, and lighting says, then you get this kind of paradoxical view of people wanting to act on climate change, but not really understanding the policies or, or the detail of them so there is absolutely a problem with communication um, in a lot of these spaces and I think if 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 um, the government is able to communicate this stuff more clearly and explain firstly why things are happening why a certain policy is being introduced but also what the outcomes of it might be people are much more likely to get on board with it. So you can use research like this in your work by the sound of it? Yeah, it's really helpful for us to to guide the kinds of things that we think will be salient with the public and therefore with politicians as well. Um, we often use public polling to make arguments about what what kind of measures we that we think the public would like to see when it comes to talking um, and engaging with, with policymakers and politicians. Um, and it's really important to politicians as well to understand public attitude towards certain things. So yeah, this is definitely something useful for us. One of the other things that that understanding society can do is researchers can use the data not just to look at attitudes, but also to to evaluate policy. So, for example, um, last year there was a paper that looked at taxing air travel and the researchers were looking at whether that would disproportionately affect certain groups. Like, for example, migrants might need to fly back to a country of origin to visit friends and family or um, people on low and middle middle incomes who can't afford foreign travel as much as people on higher incomes, you know, would it would it affect them disproportionately? And they actually found that a frequent air miles tax based on the uh, the number of flights and emissions, it was progressive because it affected richer households more than poorer. And it was less regressive than taxing home energy or petrol, for example. So is is that kind of thing useful to you in terms of looking at the detail of a policy? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think the tax you're referring to, we often call the frequent flyer levy. 
which we and others think is, is a good example of a progressive policy where those who do the polluting activity more, i.e. fly more, end up having to pay more for the damage that the emissions are causing. Um, and and yet yeah, it's, it's interesting to find that actual, you know, practice research on the ground can, can prove that it will be those flying most that are affected most rather than people who, you know, when, when these stories often come up in, in politics or in the press, you hear that, um, yeah, that a person whose family live abroad is going to be penalised more. Um, but if you look at stats of, of, of flying in particular and, and see that 70% um, of flights from the UK are taken by a very small percentage of the population, only 15% of the population, and in every given, any given year, usually only about half of British people fly, you can see why policies like a frequent flyer levy actually are palatable to people because it is penalising those that are doing the polluting activity. So what do you think um, campaigners should be doing if, if they want to convince more people to, to show pro-environmental behaviour? I think it's, it, well, it's firstly, it's really important to make sure that we're using research um, from the likes of Understanding Society to show that there is public support for this stuff. Because often one of the things we hear from government, and we heard it from the Prime Minister recently, is that people aren't on board with these policies. And, and you saw that when he lifted the ban on the um, sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030, and he lifted the, the boiler ban, uh, the supposed boiler ban, you know, they he thought they were paying attention to what the public was saying, whereas actually the public are really concerned about climate change. So the more we can keep talking about that, the better. I think the really importantly for campaigners is to, to make sure that they're pushing for policies which will go down well with the public. And there are tons of them out there. And like I said, making sure that the messaging about the benefits of a policy are really clear is going to be absolutely critical. Um, I think another good example of, of this kind of thing is the recent ULES expansion that happened almost concurrently with a by-election in the constituency of Uxbridge, which was Boris Johnson's old constituency, and actually a, a, a policy that Boris Johnson had advocated for while he was mayor of London. Um, it was something that was you know, really blown out of proportion by the press because a few people were unhappy about the expansion of the ULES scheme. And there was a real missed opportunity from kind of key politicians during that whole phase to talk more about the fact that ULES really is a healthcare policy. It's about making sure that air pollution levels are safe enough so that people aren't breathing in toxic air and developing lung conditions and health conditions. Um, and it just so happens that doing that also does help reduce emissions and, and um, therefore helps stop climate change in the UK reaching its net zero targets. Um, so, so making sure from a campaigner's point of view that the benefits of policies are really clearly communicated definitely will definitely help people come on side as well. And um, what should what should governments be doing right now? We are calling on government to go faster and be more ambitious on action on climate change across the board. So across all the kind of major polluting sectors, including transport, which which includes things like electric vehicles and aviation. So making sure that alternatives like better public transport and walking and cycling options are available to people. We need to see more ambitious policies on decarbonizing the grid, so scaling up renewables and scaling down the use of fossil fuels on the grid. We also need to see um, electrification of heat in our buildings, so the introduction of more heat pumps and district heating and heat networks, while also retrofitting homes, 
getting more insulation into homes so people's energy bills come down and they can stay warmer, warmer in winter. And like I said, the, all of these policies have really, really good benefits outside of net zero to the public as well. So, so on top of implementing those policies, the government just has to be really, really clear about what the benefits to people are. And in the majority of instances, in the long run, these will all save people money and, and insulating people's homes in particular will help bring down bills in the very short term. So so making sure the benefits of these are communicated is also a role of government and they, they need to start doing that more. Ting, actually, can I bring you back in um, just for a, a kind of final question? Um, I was wondering what you think, you know, wh- where next for for research into this into this field? Are you looking at, at uh, any different areas of, of aspects of climate change now? Yeah, I'm currently working on a project which explored the longitudinal relationship between people's income level and their attitudes to climate change risks. And uh, during the exploration of the mediation relationship, I found that uh, responsibility attribution to climate change plays a role uh, in the relationship between income attitudes. And I found that um, people who have higher income level may be more likely to contribute their everyday lifestyle to climate change, which means that they will be more concerned about climate change rather than being paradoxical and skeptical. Uh, Well, this is just a specific direction from the social demographic divide of attitudes. I think in the future, we may want to explore whether there's a moderation uh, relationship uh, between people who have attended to the university uh, compared to who have not. And then the longitudinal moderated mediation relationship can be uh, built from a long scale data set. And then maybe the multi-level analysis would be helpful to explore uh, whether people's individual income and their household income level would also contribute to their attitudes to climate change risks. My thanks to Ting Liu and Helena Bennett. You can find out more about how the data from Understanding Society is changing practice and informing policy by visiting the website understandingsociety.ac.uk and following us on social media. This was a Research Podcasts production. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts.